Mr. Risher. Mr. President, have you been surprised by the intensity of the protest against your decision to send troops into Cambodia? And will these protests affect your policy in any way? No, I have not been surprised by the intensity of the protests. I realize that those who are protesting believe that this decision will expand the war, increase American casualties, and increase American involvement. And those who protest want peace, they want to reduce American casualties, and they want our boys brought home. Uh, I made the decision, however, for the very reasons that they are protesting. And as far as affecting my decision is concerned, uh, their protests I am concerned about. I am concerned because I know how deeply they feel. But I know that what I have done will accomplish the goals that they want. It will shorten this war. It will reduce American casualties. It will allow us to go forward with our withdrawal program. The 150,000 Americans that I announced for withdrawal in the next year will come home on schedule. And it will, in my opinion, serve the cause of a just peace in Vietnam. Carmier. Do you believe that you can open up uh, meaningful communications with this uh, college-age generation, and uh, how? I would like to try as best I can to do that. Uh, it is not easy. Uh, sometimes uh, they, as you know, uh, talk so loudly that it is difficult to be heard as we've learned during the campaigns and also during the appearances that many of the cabinet officers have made on university campuses. However, on an individual basis, I believe that it is possible to do what I have been doing, to bring representatives of the college and university communities to my office, to talk with them, to have a dialogue. I'm very glad that Chancellor Hurd, uh, the Chancellor of Vanderbilt, has agreed to uh, take two months off from his very important responsibilities in that position to work with us in the administration to see if we cannot develop better lines of communication both to school administrators but also to school students. Mr. President, what, do you, what do you think the students are trying to say in this demonstration? They're trying to say that they want peace. Uh, they're trying to say that uh, they want to stop the killing. They're trying to say that they want to end the draft. They're trying to say that we ought to get out of Vietnam. I agree with everything that they're trying to accomplish. I believe, however, that the decisions that I have made, and particularly this last terribly difficult decision of going into the Cambodian sanctuaries, which were completely occupied by the enemy, I believe that that decision will serve that purpose because you can be sure that everything that I stand for is what they want. Uh, I would add this. Uh, I think I understand what they want. Uh, I, I would hope they would understand somewhat what I want. Uh, when I came to the presidency, I did not send these men to Vietnam. There were 525,000 men there. And since I've been there, I've been working 18, 20 hours a day, mostly on Vietnam, trying to bring these men home. 
we brought home 115,000. Our casualties were the lowest in the first quarter of this year in five years. We're going to bring home another 150,000. And as a result of the greater accomplishments than we expected in even the first week of the Cambodian campaign, I believe that we will have accomplished our goal of reducing American casualties and also of hastening the day that we can have a just peace. But above everything else, to continue the withdrawal program that they're for and that I am for. Yes, sir. On April 20th, you said Vietnamization was going so well that you could pull 150,000 American troops out of Vietnam. Then you turned around only 10 days later and said that it was, uh, Vietnamization was so badly threatened you were sending troops into Cambodia. Would you explain this apparent contradiction for us? Well, I explained it in my speech of April 20th, as you'll recall, because then I said that Vietnamization was going so well that we could bring 150,000 out by the spring of next year, regardless of the progress in the Paris peace talks and the other criteria that I had mentioned. But I also warned at that time that increased enemy action in Laos, in Cambodia, as well as in Vietnam, was something that we had noted, and that if I had indicated and if I found that that increased enemy action would jeopardize the remaining forces who would be in Vietnam after we had withdrawn 150,000, I would take strong action to deal with it. I found that the action that the enemy had taken in Cambodia would leave the 240,000 Americans who would be there a year from now would, without many combat troops to help defend them, would leave them in an untenable position. That's why I had to act. Sir. Mr. President, some Americans believe this country is heading for revolution, and others believe that crime and dissent and violent demonstrations are leading us to an era of repression. I wonder if you would give us your view of the state of the American society and where it's heading. Well, that would require a rather extended answer. Uh, briefly, this country is not headed for revolution. Uh, the very fact that we do have the safety valves of the right to dissent, the very fact that the President of the United States asked the district commissioners to waive their rule for 30 days' notice for a demonstration, and also asked that that demonstration occur not just around the Washington Monument, but on the ellipse, where I could hear it, and you can hear it pretty well from there, I can assure you. That fact is an indication that when you have that kind of safety valve, you're not going to have revolution, which comes from repression. Now, the second point with regard to repression, that is nonsense, in my opinion. I do not see that the critics of my policies, our policies, are repressed. I note from reading the press and from listening to television that criticism is very vigorous, sometimes quite personal. It has every right to be. I have no complaints about it. Yes, sir of the Cambodian action was the fact that the other side boycotted this week's uh, peace talks in Paris. And there's some question as to whether our side will attend next week. Have you made a decision on that? Our side will attend next week. We expect the talks to go forward. And at the time that we're cleaning out the enemy sanctuaries in Cambodia, we will pursue the path to peace at the negotiating table there and in a number of other forums that we're presently working on. Mr. Harner. 
President, Secretary of Defense Laird said last week that if the North Vietnamese troops should move across the DMZ in force, he would recommend resumption of the bombing. What would be your reaction to such a recommendation in those circumstances? I'm not going to speculate as to what the North Vietnamese may do. Uh, I will only say that uh, if the North Vietnamese uh, did what some have suggested they might do, move a massive force of 250,000 to 300,000 across the DMZ against our Marine Corps people who are there, I would certainly not allow those men to be massacred without using more force and more effective force against North Vietnam. I think we have warned the leaders of North Vietnam on this point several times, and because we have warned them, I do not believe they will move across the DMZ. Ms. Dickerson. After you met with the eight university presidents yesterday, they indicated that you had agreed to tone down the criticism within your administration of those who disagree with you. Yet tonight, Vice President Agnew is quoted all over the news programs as making a speech which includes these words that every debate has a cadre of Jeremiah's, normally a gloomy coalition of choleric young intellectuals and tired, embittered elders. Why? Ms. Dickerson, I've studied the history of this country over the past 190 years. And of course, the classic and the most interesting game is to try to drive a wedge between the president and the vice president. And believe me, I had eight years of that, and I'm experienced on that point. Now, as far as the vice president is concerned, he will answer for anything that he has said. As far as my attempting to tone him down, or my attempting to censor the Secretary of the Interior because he happens to take a different point of view, I shall not do that. I would hope that all the members of this administration uh, would have in mind the fact, a role that I have always had, and it's a very simple one. When the action is hot, keep the rhetoric cool. On April 30th, you announced that you, as Commander-in-Chief, were sending in U.S. units and South Vietnamese units into Cambodia. Do the uh, South Vietnamese abide by the same pull-out deadline as you have laid down for the American forces? No, they do not. Uh, I would expect that the South Vietnamese uh, would come out approximately at the same time that we do, because when we come out, our logistical support and air support will also come out with them. Uh, I would like also to say that with response to that deadline that I can give the members of the press some news with regard to uh, the developments that have occurred. The action actually is going faster than we had anticipated. Uh, the middle of next week, the first units, American units, will come out. The end of next week, the second, uh, second uh, group of American units will come out. Uh, the great majority of all American units will be out by the second week of June, and all Americans of all kinds, including advisors, will be out of Vietnam by the end of June. President, Potter, well, no, it's all right. I'll take you next. <laughs> Either one. The writing press gets a break. <laughs> Do you believe that the use of the word bums to categorize some of those who are engaged in dissent, and I know that you meant it to apply to those who are destructive, but it's been used in a broader context. Do you believe that's in keeping with your 
suggestion that the rhetoric should be kept cool? I would certainly regret that uh, my use of the word bums uh, was interpreted to apply to those who dissent. All the members of this press corps know that I have for years uh, defended the right of dissent. I have always opposed the use of violence. Now, on university campuses, the rule of reason is supposed to prevail over the rule of force. And when students on university campuses burn buildings, when they engage in violence, when they break up furniture, when they terrorize their fellow students and terrorize the faculty, then I think bums is perhaps too kind a word to apply to that kind of person. Those are the kind I was referring to. Oh, I'm, Mr. Rather, I'm sorry. I'll get you next, Mr. Bailey. Mr. President, uh, you mentioned that uh, you expected the Americans to be out of Cambodia by sometime in June. Uh, President Chu was quoted as saying in an interview that he felt the North Vietnamese could reestablish their sanctuaries in Cambodia within six months, and possibly, he was quoted as saying, within two or three months. Uh, if that's the case, uh, what have we accomplished in Cambodia? Was it worth the risks, and what do we do when they reestablish those sanctuaries? Uh, I'm planning to give a report to the nation when our own uh, actions are completed uh, toward the latter part of June. At that time, I will answer that question in full. At the present time, I will say that it is my belief, uh, based on what we have accomplished to date, that we have bought at least six months and probably eight months of time for the training of the Arvin, that is the Army of Vietnam, South Vietnam. We have also saved, I think, hundreds, if not thousands, of Americans, as Frank Reynolds reported tonight on ABC, rockets by the thousands and small arms by the millions have already been captured, and those rockets and small arms will not be killing Americans in these next few months. And what we've also accomplished is that by buying time, it means that if the enemy does come back into those sanctuaries, next time the South Vietnamese will be strong enough and well-trained enough to handle it alone. I should point out, too, that they are handling a majority of the assignment now in terms of manpower. Mr. Bailey. Sir, without asking you to uh, censor the Secretary of the Interior, could you comment on the substantive points that he made in his letter? I think the Secretary of the Interior is uh, a man who has very strong views. He's, uh, he's outspoken. He's courageous. That's one of the reasons I selected him for the Cabinet and one of the reasons that I defended him very vigorously before this press corps when he was under attack. Now, uh, as far as his views are concerned, I will, of course, be interested in his advice. Uh, I might say, too, that... Uh, I hope he gives some advice to the Postmaster General. That was the fastest mail delivery I've had since I've been in the White House. <laughs> Mr. Scali. Mr. President, uh, how do you answer the criticism that the justification that you give for going into the Cambodian sanctuaries is hauntingly similar to the reasons that President Lyndon Johnson gave as he moved step by step up the ladder of escalation. He wanted peace too, sir. Yes. 
Mr. Scully, President Johnson did want peace. And uh, if I may use the vernacular, he's taken a bad rap from those that say that he wanted war. However, the difference is that he did move step by step. This action is a decisive move. And this action also puts the enemy on warning that if it escalates while we are trying to de-escalate, that we will move decisively and not step by step. Mr. Healy. Mr. President, uh, this war was well underway uh, before you came in, as you just said. Now, considering the toll in the lives and in everything else that's happening now, do you think that will that prove to be worthwhile? It's rather a moot question, Mr. Healy, as to whether it will prove to have been worthwhile. As Commander-in-Chief, I found 525,000 Americans. It's been my responsibility to do everything that I could to protect their lives and to get them home as quickly as I can. And we've succeeded pretty well. We brought 115,000 home. We're going to bring another 150,000. And this action will assure the continued success of that program. However, looking at the toll of Southeast Asia, looking at the fact that we have lost lives there, I would say that only history will record whether it was worthwhile. I do know this. Now that America is there, if we do what many of our very sincere critics think we should do, if we withdraw from Vietnam and allow the enemy to come into Vietnam and massacre the civilians there by the millions as they would, if we do that, let me say that America is finished insofar as a peacekeeper in the Asian world is concerned. In the light of the uh, Kent State University incident, could you tell us what, in your judgment, uh, is the proper uh, action and conduct for a police force or a National Guard force when ordered to clear a campus area and faced with a crowd throwing rocks? We think we've done a rather good job here in Washington in that respect. As you note, we handled the two demonstrations, October 15th and November 15th of last year, without any significant uh, casualties. Uh, and uh, that took a lot of doing because there were some pretty rough people involved. A few were rough. Most of them were very peaceful. Uh, I would hope that the experience that we have had in that respect could be shared by the, the National Guards, which of course are not under federal control, but under state control. Now what I say is not to be interpreted as a criticism in advance of my getting the facts of the National Guards at Kent State. I want to know what the facts are. I've asked for the facts, and when I get them, I'll have something to say about it. But I do know that when you do have a situation of a crowd throwing rocks, and the National Guard is caused it, called in, that there is always the chance that it will escalate into the kind of a tragedy that happened at Kent State. And if there's one thing I am personally committed to, it's this. I saw the pictures of those four youngsters in the Evening Star the day after that tragedy. And I vowed then that we were going to find methods that would be more effective to deal with these problems of violence, methods that would deal with those who would use force and violence and endanger others, but at the same time would not take the lives of innocent people. Mr. President, Mr. President, yes, sir. Uh, 
After the American troops are removed from Cambodia, there may still be a question as to the future of Cambodia's ability to exist as a neutralist country. What is your policy toward Cambodia's future? The United States uh, is, of course, interested in the future of Cambodia and the future uh, of, of Laos, their neutrality, both of which, of course, as you know, are neutral countries. However, the United States, as I indicated in what is called the Guam or Nixon Doctrine, cannot take the responsibility and should not take the responsibility in the future to send American men in to defend the neutrality of countries that are unable to defend them themselves. In this area, what we have to do is to go down the diplomatic trail. And that is why we are exploring with the Soviet Union, with not too much success to date, but we're going to continue to explore it, with Great Britain, with the Asian countries that are meeting in Jakarta, and with every, through every possible channel, methods through which the neutrality of countries like Cambodia and Laos, who cannot possibly defend themselves, to see that that neutrality is guaranteed without having the intervention of foreign forces. In your inaugural address, you said that one of your goals was to bring us together in America. You said that you wanted to move us in international terms from an era of confrontation to an era of negotiation. And you said you wanted to bring peace to Vietnam. Well, during the past two weeks, it seemed that we're farther ever from those goals. How do you account for this apparent failure? Don't judge us too quickly. Uh, when it comes to negotiation, I would suggest that you uh, recognize the fact that some very important talks are going forward on arms limitation with the Soviet Union. We're still far apart. But I will predict now that there will be an agreement. And when that agreement comes, it will have great significance. And I say that having in mind the fact that we are far apart from the Soviet Union in our policy toward Southeast Asia, in our policy toward the Mideast. But I say that where the problem of arms are concerned, here's where our interests are together. The Soviet Union has just as great an interest as we have in seeing that there is some limitation on nuclear arms. Have any judgment yet on the sale of jets to Israel, and how do you view the situation in the Middle East at the moment? Well, the situation has become ominous due to the fact that uh, reports have been received with regard to Soviet pilots uh, being interjected uh, into the UAR Air Force, not in a combat, but in some other role. Uh, we are watching these reports very closely. If those reports prove to be true, and if that continues to escalate, this will dramatically shift the balance of power, and it would make it necessary for the United States to reevaluate its decision with regard to the sale of jets to Israel. We have, we have made it very clear, and this is in the interest of peace in that area, that the balance of power must not be changed, and we will keep that commitment. Yes, sir. Is the United States prepared to pursue with equal fervor in Paris negotiations to find a political settlement of, the, of this war, uh, including the possibility of discussing with the other side a coalition government? We are prepared to uh, seek, not only in Paris, but in any other forum, a political settlement of this war. We are not prepared, however, to seek any settlement in which we, or anyone else, imposes upon the people of South Vietnam a government that they do not choose.
the people of South Vietnam choose a coalition government, if they choose to change the leaders they presently have, that is a decision we will accept. And President Chu has indicated he will accept it. But we do not intend to impose at the conference table on the people of South Vietnam a government they do not choose. All right. uh, on a domestic subject, the economy, sir, uh, unemployment is up, the stock market is down, uh, things look generally discouraging. Do you have any, any uh, views on that, and do you have any plans on that? Yes, unemployment reached the point of 4.8, I noticed, this last month. In order to keep it in perspective, it should be noted that in 1961, 1962, 1963, 1964, 1965, the average unemployment was 5.7. 5.7 is too high. 4.8, I think, is also too high. But the unemployment we presently have is the result of the cooling of the economy and our fight against inflation. We believe, however, that as we look through the balance of the year, that we will begin to see a moving up in our gross national product in the last of the second quarter and throughout the third and fourth quarters. I believe that by the end of the year, we will have passed the trillion dollar mark in terms of GNP. I believe that the year 1970 will be a good year economically, a year in which uh, unemployment, we hope, can be kept below uh, the average that we had in the early 50s. 60s, which was much too high. <laughs> did Secretary of State Rogers oppose your decision to go into Cambodia, or did Dr. Kissinger oppose it? Every one of my advisors, Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, Dr. Kissinger, uh, Director Helms, uh, raised questions about the decision. And believe me, I raised the most questions because uh, I knew the stakes that were involved. I knew the division that would be caused in this country. I knew also the problems internationally. I knew the military risks. And then after hearing all of their advice, I made the decision. Decisions, of course, are not made by vote in the National Security Council or in the Cabinet. They're made by the President with the advice of those. And I made this decision. I take the responsibility for it. I believe it was the right decision. I believe it will work out. If it doesn't, then I'm to blame. They are not. Mr. Morgan. Volumes have been written about the loneliness of the presidency. You yourself have said that you were not going to get trapped into an isolation as president. Have you, particularly in recent, in recent days, felt isolated? And if you have not, could you explain to us why it was it not until yesterday that you, whose voice means more than anybody else in the administration, whether it be Mr. Agnew or Mr. Hickel, waited until yesterday to tell the educators that the administration was lowering its, it was modifying its discourse with the dissenters? Well, first let us understand what I told the educators. Uh, the educators came in to discuss their problems. And uh, since they are all presidents, I felt uh, a community of interest with them. Uh, I indicated to them that I didn't want to make their job any harder for them, and I would appreciate it if they wouldn't make my job any harder for me in their own activities. Uh, they raised questions about uh, the vice president. 
and about other people in administration, about the rhetoric. Uh, and uh, I know, of course, questions have been raised about my rhetoric. Let me say that in terms, however, of the vice president, in terms of what I told the educators, I did not indicate to them that I was going to muzzle the vice president, that I was going to censor him. I believe that the vice president, the secretary of the interior, the secretary of HEW, everybody in this administration should have the right, after considering all the factors, to speak out and express his views. This is an open administration. It will continue to be. I also think that people should have the right to speak out as they do in the House, in the Senate, in the media, and in the universities. The only difference is that of all these people, and I refer particularly to some of my lively critics in the House and Senate, they have the luxury of criticism. I was once a senator and a House member, and I thought back to this when I called Harry Truman today and wished him well on his 86th birthday, some of the rather rugged criticisms that I directed in his direction. They have the luxury of criticism because uh, they can criticize, and if it doesn't work out, then uh, they can gloat over it. Or if it does work out, uh, the criticism will be forgotten. I don't have that luxury. As Commander-in-Chief, I alone am responsible for the lives of 425 or 30,000 Americans in Vietnam. That's what I've been thinking about. And the decision that I made in Cambodia will save those lives. It will bring the peace that we all want, in my opinion. Now, I could be wrong, but if I am wrong, I am responsible and nobody else. Early in the news conference, in saying that the troop withdrawals would continue, you said that a year from now there would be 240,000 American soldiers in Vietnam. Don't hold me to the exact figure. I haven't that's said that. Yeah. That's 185,000 less. Are you uh, announcing a larger withdrawal no, tonight? No, I wasn't. I was, what I was indicating a range, but uh, don't uh, get the impression that we might not get that low also because uh, you understand we're going to go forward on the negotiating track uh, at this time, and I am not among those who has given up on that track. I still think there's a possibility of progress there. Yes. Will you see any of the demonstrators tomorrow in the White House? Will you talk with them? <coughs> if uh, arrangements are made by my staff so that uh, they can uh, come in to see me, I'll be glad to. Uh, I talk to great numbers of people. I will be there all day long, and as a matter of fact, I'll be, here to, be there tonight, tomorrow, as well. Uh, but sometimes it is quite difficult to arrange which group should come in. I think, I know members of my staff will go out to see them. I've asked all the younger members of my staff to talk to the demonstrators and uh, try to get their views, as we did in November 15th and October 15th, and I'll be glad to see them if some of them are available. Thank you, Mr. President. Could I ask uh, the members of the press to wait one moment? For 26 years, a member of this press corps did just what Frank Cormier did then. He uh, was known as the man who said, thank you, Mr. President. Three weeks ago, he met a tragic death. And as we close this conference, I would like to suggest that we all stand for a moment in memory of Miriam Smith. 